especially with Asian Americans and Asians in general, and a lot of other cultures too. There's a culture mm -hmm. of like shame and losing mm -hmm. face. You don't mm -hmm. want to lose face. You want to yeah. be manly. You want to be like everything's going well. It makes it so difficult to open up about whether it's like emotions or failure or vulnerabilities, even asking questions. Sometimes I think we are a little bit afraid of raising our hand and asking questions because of the potential embarrassment that mm -hmm. you might have of, oh, what if it's a bad question? Over time, I've learned to not be afraid to open up about failures and about those types of things at the risk of my reputation dying. And that's okay. And I realize that the risk is it's worth it because one is that it helps other people learn from my mistakes. You're listening to the Big Asian Energy Show, where every week we interview Asian experts, move makers, and ceiling breakers to uncover their secrets to success so we can help you reach your greatest potential. I'm your host, John Wang. Let's dive in. Today, we're talking to Christina Chi, a rebel CEO, if there was ever once one. She began her career starting a high-frequency hedge fund in her dorm room at MIT with only $1,000 that would later on go on to trade over $7 billion a day. She's been recognized as a Forbes 30 under 30, as well as a 40 under 40 winner, and has been featured on the front page of Forbes. Nikkei featured on the Wall Street Journal for her work in high-frequency trading and uh, sat, sat on the board of trustees at MIT in nonprofits like Investing Girls and taught her company's case study at Harvard Business School. On the interview, we talk about everything, including how she got over the kid mentality that causes us to be overly apologetic in our communication, and how she shuts down people who makes judgments about her for her gender and her race, and even about imposter syndrome, despite the fact that she was running multiple million-dollar companies throughout her career. Welcome to the show, Christina. Thank you so much for being on today. Thanks, John, for having me. Really excited to be here. For our audience who might not have heard of you, can you give us a quick intro of who you are and what you do in your own words? Yeah, for sure. So I'm Christina Chi. It's really hard to describe. I guess I'm an entrepreneur is probably the best way to put it. My really weird fun fact is that I've actually never worked for somebody else full-time before, for better or worse, and it could be actually a really bad thing. But ever since my college days, I started my first company from a dorm room and that was a hedge fund. And so I ran a hedge fund doing high frequency trading. And we did that for actually almost a decade, pretty much. And then shut down the fund recently and started a second company called Data Bento, which is a market data provider. Now we're more in the fintech space, but we provide data for a lot of our customers, our hedge funds and financial industry folks anyway. Yeah, it's been really fun to come back and be back to being an entrepreneur again at the early stages and to kind of see that growth and journey. But yeah, I'm originally from Salt Lake City, Utah, and I live here today as well. I lived in Boston for 12 years during my first company's journey, and then mm. recently moved back to Salt Lake City to be closer to my family. So yeah, it's really great to be here with you guys today. Awesome. We're going to add that one detail because I remember reading your bio when you first started your first company that was the High Frequency Trading Fund, and I had to go and look up what that meant. But Same. you guys were trading up to $7 billion a day. And you started that with $1,000 in your dorm room at MIT, right? Yes, yes. So so there's a lot of students who are like, I've got $1,000 in a dorm room. <laughs> How do I get there? <laughs> yeah, for sure. It was a 10 year long journey, pretty much. And there was so many ups and downs in that process. It wasn't an overnight. I wish it was like Bitcoin, where you just buy Bitcoin in 2009, and then you become a billionaire by 2013. It's not like that at all. It was quite a big struggle, roller coaster of ups and downs. But yeah, that is true. So we did start with a little bit of money that I had earned from one of my summer internships, actually. It was funny, actually, because I interned in sales and trading. They didn't give me an offer, but I earned a little bit of money just through that summer internship. And then I was able to put that $1,000 into some very early strategies. This wasn't high frequency trading yet. We need more, a lot more technology to put that together. But we saw some promise early on. And then over the years decided, let's scale this up and try to achieve more and more over time. And then I guess the ironic story was that some of the companies that I interned for ended up actually investing in my fund many years later. Oh my gosh. Um, so it was a really cool things coming full circle for me a little bit. Yeah. So um, hold on. You know, These are the companies that didn't give you a job, right? 
<laughs> yeah. So to be fair, I was a bad intern, right? Like just looking at it objectively, I didn't work as hard as I should have. I definitely was rebellious in terms of just not following instructions very well and just not really being a good intern. And so if I was my boss, I wouldn't hire myself. But yeah, I'm really grateful that we were able to build something new in this space that was wanted by these companies. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me more a little bit more about that. You said that you were a little bit rebellious because that's an interesting thing for me because where Asian Americans, especially in the field of finance, are not typically known to be rebellious. This is not a word we usually hear. How are you rebellious? Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's a good question. I guess it's more that for me growing up, for whatever reason, I've always just had very little respect for authority. And I hate saying it that way. It's not like I don't respect any authority, <laughs> but just more compared to your average student. There were some things in my school that just made no sense. So I'll give you an example, even like in high school, I have core memories of when I was taking a beginner chemistry class class and I would ask a question and the teacher would say, I'm not allowed to ask that question because of, I think it was the no child left behind policy where every student, the worst student had to catch up to the best student in the class. Yeah. And so we weren't allowed to even ask questions during class that were very oh basic questions. So I had to Google them instead. And so just policies like that, where I'm like, I start to critically think, wait a second, this yeah. is really bizarre. I'm a student. I want to <laughs> learn. I have questions. And the teacher won't even like answer my question, even though he knows the mm. answer. He could have just spent two seconds saying yes or no, but instead he's I can't answer that. And it just blew my mind that it's not the teacher's fault. It's probably some kind of the law and what's allowed in our country and stuff like that. But just growing up in that environment, I grew up in Utah, by the way. So that's another thing is maybe I was influenced by the education system here, which is that's great. Like I moved back because I want to, if I have kids, like I want them to be able to grow up here. So there's a lot of merits to being here. So I'm not complaining, but I swear, I think that's just where the that rebellion came from a little bit mm. where just realizing, hey, there are some things that the system could improve upon. And that for me as, an individual, like I can hopefully do something to get better at that. And if I can't, then I'm sure you guys have all worked in, we've all worked in environments where there are arbitrary rules that oh just make no sense. Right. And some of my previous work environments where one of the companies I worked at, we were required to stay in the office until after our boss left. And it's just an arbitrary rule. I'm like, wait a second. It wasn't like you had to finish a certain amount of work. You just literally <laughs> were not allowed to leave. Exactly. Even if you're just doing busy work. Yeah. It was like FaceTime where what we had to that? show our face and be present. And even if we finished our work early for whatever reason, and I get it, look, internships are a sunk cost for most companies, even for mm. us, for me as an employer sure. now, I get it. But at the same time, I'm like, I would never impose that on my interns. I would never mm. tell them like, you must stay until I step out of the office. I never step out of the office. Like It's like a weird policy. And so just learning and just when those things happen, you feel stifled a little bit. Mm. might feel like, like, why you question yeah. things. And so I think that's where the, I wouldn't even call it rebellion. It's just more thinking that things should be questioning why things are the right. way they are, I guess. And Critical then, thinking. Yeah. yeah. Was this a, because again, so many Asian people just coming back to my own culture, challenging authority was not a big part of Asian cultural teachings, typically speaking. So did you, was it something in your parents that taught this or was this just your own personality that showed up? I really don't know. Maybe just my own personality <laughs> a little bit. Definitely. I know my parents had their rebellious days back in the day. I know actually during, my mom doesn't like me talking about this, but during Tiananmen, like Tiananmen Square Massacre, my dad was a student at the time and he crawled into a tank and argued with the people. So I didn't whoa, know. But whoa, like, hold I, I didn't need the whole story know. for this. He crawled <laughs> yeah. into a tank at Tiananmen yeah. Square. Yeah, he like crawled into a tank and argued with whoever the tank like person. Like the soldier yeah. who was driving a tank. <laughs> yeah. Was your dad tank man? The guy. I know, right? I don't know Odo? what happened. Was he the tank man? No idea. But, uh, but yeah, it was like, I didn't really know these, by the way, until later on in my life. And then I realized and I discovered, I'm like, oh yeah, I didn't realize my parents were also rebellious in their own way. And I feel like everyone is. It's just that we're stereotyped as being obedient. And, and I get it. Look, we're as students, right? I'm the one I like to ask questions and stuff mm -hmm. like that. But then even in high school, I'm sure my classmates are like, oh yeah, Christina's a shy, quiet, obedient person. Mm -hmm. But actually I think of myself, I'm like, wait a second. I was always the one criticizing people and <laughs> just being the more rebellious one in terms of that. And so maybe it's yeah. also just how we're perceived by the media and by others around us. But actually it's not true. And the other thing is, by the way, there's nothing wrong with being shy and quiet. And I think that, that really bothered me when I remember I was applying to college and there's a forum called College Confidential. And I don't know mm -hmm. if it's still around. This was like oh, yeah. years ago. 
Yep, yep. But anyway, so billionaires are the keeners are. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember reading in the forum about someone was asking, like, why are Asian Americans like how can we stand out more in our applications? Mm -hmm. And an actual, a real admissions officer for a really large university came in and said, Asians are always so shy and quiet and they're always so mm. good at math. And she said those as if they were bad things. And right. thankfully, people called her out. They were like, you say those things being quiet and obedient and good at math as if those are bad things. And that's yeah. not true. And it's yeah. just, you know, for some reason, it's being used against us. Imagine saying that to any other race, right? Oh, you're good at math. And that's like a bad thing. That's a bad thing, <laughs> right? A yeah. Thing that your math is everywhere around us. I use math in my job every day. And I, I think it's a great thing. And but yeah, so just felt those stereotypes do perpetuate, I think, over time. Mm -hmm. And they do, unfortunately, I think it is being used against the Asian race for one way or another. And so, yeah. A hundred percent. We do see that in workplaces where employers would oftentimes write things like, oh, lacks executive gravitas or lacks executive presence and doesn't really have that. Essentially, what we're talking about is assertiveness, right? That critical thinking of, hold on a second, this doesn't make any sense. And that willingness to speak and say something isn't right. And I think that is the part that is a miscommunication. We as Asian people, we got this like weird myth branding that we don't ever question. We obviously do. Yeah, exactly. And it's oftentimes it's like unspoken. Like maybe for me, I was like growing up, I remember I was taught to respect authority. And so maybe I wouldn't interrupt someone during a meeting to say something. I might DM them. I might email them on the side or pull them to the side and say, hey, let's, why don't we do this instead? The context is everything here too. So it's like, they're expecting mm -hmm. us to be a certain way, but sometimes definitely it's taught me a little bit. I have had to learn a little bit about this, by the way, too, in terms of when I was growing up, I definitely did have one thing, which is like that I had a child mentality where mm -hmm. when I was a student, I thought that I'm like the kid. My mm -hmm. professors are the adults in the room. The guest mm -hmm. speakers who come in, they're the adults in the room. And I'm this kid who I need to be mentored. I need advice mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And whenever I would reach out to them, they would never respond to me, obviously. <laughs> like, I'd be like, will you be my mentor? I've never had a single person say, yes, I will be your mentor. If you think about it, it makes sense. But one thing I didn't realize is even as a student, I have value to bring to mm. my professors, to Clearly. these guest speakers, to professionals, industry professionals mm. that I'm meeting. For example, I remember when I was applying to jobs, I would just send the application and then hope for the best. And they'd schedule an interview and I'd respond and they would never respond back. Sometimes even the recruiter would ghost me mm -hmm. in the process. And I'm like, what's going on? And then, you know, realizing, hey, if I had known at the time, like I have value, I could say, hey, I'm happy to forward your job posting to my student mailing list. I have my dorm has a mailing list of jobs. Mm -hmm. My student clubs on campus, like the business clubs and stuff, they all have mailing lists. I'm happy to forward your job posting or my student group. We could have you as a guest speaker for one of our student societies on campus. Mm -hmm. Those are amazing, valuable opportunities that any employer, when they read that message, they're going to respond to you because now they mm -hmm. realize you are a person of value to them. And I never realized that as a student and that I have that self-worth too. And so that there was a little bit of, and I don't know how much of that's cultural or not, but mm -hmm. definitely growing up being taught to respect your elders and stuff like that definitely had a little bit of an impact on, sure. on that mentality. Yeah. Yeah. When we hear that somebody say no, we just take it at face value and go, okay, that's it. I'm not diving in. One thing that I found such an interesting point, by the way, any of you guys who are right now in the job searching process, what an incredible piece of wisdom, right? Go in, take active thing. Don't take no for an answer. You can actually offer value and think about where it is that I can introduce value in this dynamic, in this relationship. Because even if it is seeming a hierarchical relationship where it's like a professor or an employer to a prospective employee, you could see that we're equals. There's exchanges of value. So by thinking for them, we could actually create a lot of opportunities. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I wish I had known that when I was a student and instead of just begging people for mentorship all the time, which didn't work clearly, <laughs> should have just said, hey, I have value to bring and mm -hmm. here's what we can do. And there's so many opportunities. If you're a student, you have an entire network at your school, right? Mm -hmm. So thinking about how you can forward, even just offering to forward someone's job post which takes two seconds of your time. <laughs> like doing something as simple as an offer like that gets a recruiter's attention, gets HR's attention, and they'll continue to move you along that process as a result. And so there's a lot of things you can do to help along. And, and I, for me, unfortunately, I realized it, I learned this the hard way a little bit where when mm. I was a professional, I'd already graduated and I still had this mentality. To be fair, I was like, what, 22? When you're talking about the kid mentality that you're- Yeah, the kid before. mentality. What's the kid mentality? What do you mean yeah. by the kid mentality? I guess it's just more at the time, because I was also so young, 
I'm thankfully like a lot older now, but 10 years ago, <laughs> 22, 23. And I felt like even then that we had to find the first thing we had to do for a job, for example, for my company is we had to find a lawyer. And I would email like a dozen lawyers and my emails, if I go back and read and I cringe because they were polite and mm. I was apologizing through my emails. I was like, I'm sorry for bothering you. Mm. Sorry for wasting your time. I'm like, yo, I'm paying you a thousand dollars an hour. Yeah. For I'm not wasting any, <laughs> you're wasting my time. Like that's how I'm supposed to be thinking about it. But yeah, I was you work for me. Wrong. I thought it was like such an honor to talk to these people. And I'm like, mm. no. and then I would ask them for things. And, and one of the lawyers actually responded and said, you're just a kid. Like, why would I want to work with you? Wait a second. So <laughs> did they actually said, and again, you're essentially their client, you're hiring them, you're paying them money. And they said, what? They called me a kid. And they said that, and this was, by the way, there was an email that I wasn't supposed to see. They were <gasps> um, emailing each other as colleagues to debate about whether to work with us. And somebody said, these are not legitimate customers. They're just a bunch of kids. Let's oh, charge wow. them a really high retainer so that we can drive them away. And I was accidentally CC'd in the email. And then when I replied, wow. obviously they all ignored me. They were like probably embarrassed about that, but it did help me realize this is how people view me behind my back. And that wow. is actually valuable feedback for me. Now I think about it again, I'm still gutted when I read yeah, that. Yeah, I'd be so like, pissed. <laughs> what in the world? And I was just yeah. gutted that we had the money, by the way, we had already raised venture capital funding. So mm -hmm. it wasn't like we weren't coming to them saying, hey, we're a bunch of poor could, students. Could I ask what that will look like? Just for those of you guys who don't understand what venture capital funding means. What does that mean? How much we're we talking about? How much money do you guys have? Yeah, I think at the time we had raised about like a $3 million seed round, which I know sounds like nothing today, but trust me, 10 years ago, that was a lot of money. We had $3 million to pay these lawyers. And that was more than enough of a budget, I felt like, to help us to pay lawyers and get to launch. And we wouldn't be stingy. I'm not going to be a penny pincher about this. Like, no. so yeah. I, it blew my mind that even with $3 million in my bank account, that we still weren't able to hire these lawyers in town. So, yeah. But anyway, that feedback helped me realize that I was wording my emails wrong. Mm. I was clearly doing something. And now when I email lawyers, obviously it's an air of authority, an mm -hmm. air of this is my time is the valuable one here. I'm the client. Mm -hmm. I'm yeah. not the one begging you for anything. So just mm -hmm. the tone that I've definitely shifted over time, become a lot more, I think just professional in terms of how to interact with even just like lawyers. And so my kid mentality, I've definitely changed that and realized mm -hmm. we are all equals and that I don't need to apologize ever for wasting anybody's time in the business. Yeah. I think that's such an important part of it is when we make that change, it's not just in our languaging, right? Because I think a lot of people, their first question is, okay, so how do I sound more authoritative? It actually just starts with our own mindset and realize that you don't need to pretend or one, one advice I don't love is fake it till you make it because I'm oftentimes like, what are you faking? That you have value, that you deserve respect? Of course you do. <laughs> There's nothing to fake. You just have to accept it and act like you want to get there. And that is such a huge transformation. I would say my question here is when did that start to land for you? Um, when did that transformation happen for you? Yeah, I think first it was uncomfortable to write emails with, I started no more apologizing. It takes a while to get out of that mentality because that's what I learned and that's what I've done this whole time and it wasn't working for me. And so then changing that and starting to write more, being more concise and just changing the wording and also the mentality. I think first it was uncomfortable. And then over time, as I started seeing more results, right? People respond faster. They're like, when I'm more assertive as well through email and I, I just say, hey, I'm Christina. Or sometimes I'll even tell them like, hey, my, my hedge fund traded $7.1 billion a day. And they see that and they're like, oh crap, <laughs> to respond to me. And so, yeah, absolutely. It does demand more attention and it helps me realize this kind of stuff does, it does work and that it's okay to say who you are and what you've done and what you've accomplished and self-promote. Yeah. I'm a really big believer. One of the core messages I think in big Asian energy is I actually think Asian Americans need to be much better at self-promotion. We just got to own the fact that we're often really good at what we do, but we're not that good at telling people about it and just owning the fact that, yeah, you're a badass. Speaking of owning and being seen for that, tell me a little bit more about what happened with the fund after you guys the Michael Lewis Flash Boys came out because this was a, a big deal. So can you give me a little bit of that background and, and what happened? Yeah, for sure. So to give you guys some context first, we were starting a high frequency trading hedge fund, which is rare. It's usually high frequency trading firms are not really hedge funds in structure, but anyway, that's a story for another time. But all you need to know is that it was high frequency trading. And the definition of that is basically we were making high a large frequency of trades every day. So we would make, let's say, thousands of trades. It could be over 10,000 trades a day. At the end of the day, I look at our broker statements 
trades. It's quite long. Like the statements go <laughs> miles and miles long because we're making trades like pretty quickly and we're reacting mm-hmm. to events in the markets on a, think of it like looking through a microscope, like on a very micro level. Mm-hmm. We're looking at data at that level and trading at a very micro level in the markets and uh, things were going fine. We're starting the fund. I remember we were speaking at some events. I think it's like, it was a Bloomberg event, like around early March of 2014. This was a while back and everything was great. The event ended and everyone's asking great questions and people would line up to have chats and ask me more questions and about the fund and how we started it and everything was going well. And then at the very end of March, this book called Flash Boys came out. It's a New York Times bestseller written by Michael Lewis. He's famous for a bunch of movies out there. I think The Big Short, mm-hmm. a bunch of, there's a bunch of other movies and books that he's written. He's one of those people who's known to write a lot of books related to the financial industry, related to business. And so he wrote this, it was like a scathing, Flash Boys is basically this book that tears apart the high frequency trading world. And it Mm -hmm. talks about how high frequency traders, the origin of this, how these high frequency firms are digging holes like through the mountain and under the river and just to be like one millisecond faster than their competitors with sending data from one location to the next, just to, they call it front running to be one second faster. And the book had a lot of, unfortunately, misconceptions that Mm. came around with it. So front running, for example, is illegal, by the way. Mm. And we don't do front running. We can't do front running. (laughs) And for us, like there was so many misconceptions about all that because what we were doing is all we were doing is just taking data that was available to everybody. Mm-hmm. We were paying the fastest routes now between, let's say, New York and Chicago for those wires, microwave towers and cables and stuff. Those are owned by vendors today. They're not owned mm-hmm. by individual companies. So we wouldn't do that. So all we do is we pay a vendor. I think it was only $5,000 a month. It was a pretty cheap price and we would get the same fast speeds as everybody else. So it was actually an mm-hmm. equal playing field. So there's right. a lot of misconceptions like that. But the funny thing was after the book came out, I went to a conference like two weeks or three weeks afterwards. Mm-hmm. And this time it was like, everything changed. It was like night, day, and <laughs> like people in the audience, someone raised their hand. And it was funny because he worked at Bank of America. And I remember mm-hmm. that for some reason, but he raised his hand and he's like, you guys are evil. I hate everything you're doing. I oh can't believe God. you're front running. Like you should be in jail. And he said this to me. And I was like, oh my Lo- God. While you were on stage giving the yeah, talk? Yeah, while I was on stage, just someone Whoa. just yelling at me and saying like all these things. And I'm like, oh, wait a second. We are not doing any of those things described in the book. And right. we're still doing high frequency trading, but yeah. I was just basically looking at data and making predictions on a very micro level, but it, we weren't like buying yeah. other people's trades. We weren't yeah. doing any of that kind of stuff. There's nothing so, sketchy going on. Yeah, exactly. How did it feel in that moment where you were on stage <laughs> and getting heckled essentially by, by someone misaccusing you? Yeah. The scary part was it felt like people thought that I was responsible for what happened in the book. You became like a face, like literally your face yeah. was published onto, if I remember correctly, like a bunch of magazines around yeah. the world, Forbes, Nikkei, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, all of these places, you became somehow a figure. Uh, <laughs> I don't, about and it this. was weird because I'm like, I like, I'm not a pioneer in this industry. I'm just a nobody who just started a company, and we're still at the early stages. But we are one of the louder companies. That is true. A lot of what happened after Flash Boys came out was a lot of the big high frequency funds. They changed their branding. Some of them, um, I remember, some of them would remove their website altogether, or they oh, would wow. completely overhaul their site. And instead of calling it high frequency trading, they would call it electronic market making or quantitative trading. <laughs> there are other terms that are less controversial. And we were the only ones where we we're like, let's just proudly call ourselves high frequency yeah. trading in all caps on our website. Yeah. And so definitely at some point, I think we were on the first page of Google. If you Googled high frequency trading, our website would appear, which was like bizarre. And so it was good and bad in the sense that we got quite a lot of attention and mm. lots of job applicants as a result, <laughs> lots of interest, <laughs> media reporters wanting yeah. to learn more about high frequency, wanting to learn about from a real someone who would take an interview. Nobody else would take interviews for some time. And I was like, sure, I'll help debunk some of those myths. And so, yeah, it was like an interesting experience. Would I ever relive that? I don't know. (laughs) But yeah, it was quite a unique experience to go through. Yeah. (laughs) This is an interesting theme that I'm seeing. Going back to your experiences being like a little bit of a rebel in high school, through university, going through the internship process, deciding to start your own company in your own dorm room, and then taking charge and saying, hey, look, what we're doing, yeah, we do high frequency trading, but what we're doing isn't sketchy or unethical. And I don't mind. I'm not going to be like those guys who are like running and rebranding, I'm going to step into the spotlight. And again, like that, I'm curious, was there any hesitancy around that? Was there any fears that came up? Or did you just go, nope, I'm going to channel that energy. I'm going to step right into it. Yeah, I think a part of it was wanting to set the record straight in this industry. And it was really sad that not a lot of people were willing to 
speak up. And the people who did often were the criticism, the critics who were saying that this was evil. And I wanted to set the record straight, if not for myself or the company, at least for the industry to say, hey, here's what it's actually like. And by the way, it's funny, speaking of things being unfair or unequitable, only in my career of doing this high frequency fund for almost a decade, the most unfair things I encountered had nothing to do with high frequency trading. It had everything to do with what I mentioned, the lawyers not wanting to work with us. That was totally unfair. Tell me more about my age, my gender, my race, who knows? Or was it my language that I used when I spoke to them? It could have been a combination of factors, but those to me were more unfair and made our chances of success lower um, Mm. rather than the high frequency stuff was all fair, like data stuff. Oh, great. We get data from this like New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ Mm -hmm. and they give data to everybody else for the same price. And it was like, that was totally fair and equitable. We didn't have to front run anybody or back run anybody or anything illegal to do that. And the trading stuff was relatively straightforward. I think it was more the operations and the back end of trying to find a good lawyer, trying to find good wanted auditors and accountants, like Mm. these service providers that we wanted to hire. It was a very difficult process for us to get a lot of those in place because of a lot of, I don't know if it's biases in the industry or maybe because of like how old or young we were at the time. It uh, it could be. When I think about Wall Street looks like, and this might be my own bias, but when I browse Wall Street board members, they tend to look like old white dudes. And I don't mean that as like a criticism, but there is a history of that. So you being a young Asian woman definitely doesn't quite fit that model. And it sounds like that affected you guys' experience. Yeah, I think it's mostly microaggressions, by the way. So if you ask someone, hey, are you racist? Everyone's gonna say, of course not. Of course I'm not racist, right? Nobody thinks so. Then the microaggressions are like when they have good intentions, but then it's still based on a bias that they have. So for example, I've talked about this story before about I was at the Schwartzman Library in New York and it was like a dinner table setting. It was a hedge fund event. Mm -hmm. And I was walking up to stage to give a talk during this event and everybody else is sitting down. You weren't a student at this point. You were quite advanced in your career. I was already in the hedge fund space. I was already giving a lot of talks and having some authority and just speaking out about HFT and doing a lot of things in the space. So you were already established. Like Dormiar was already well known and you were like a legit (laughs) kind of person. You've been exactly, on yeah, forty and forty and all money if that matters. So they invited me to give a talk, and I was walking up to the stage to give my keynote, and this guy, I just hear someone going, "Excuse me, ma'am, we're done with our table." We're done with our food. Can you clear our plates? Very angry. He sounded frustrated. And I turned around and he's look, clearly looking at me and motioning to his table being like, yo, where how, aren't you doing your job? And again, like that's a textbook definition of a microaggression where mm. he had good intentions. He didn't say, oh, she must be a waitress or whatever. He didn't mm. do that to make fun of me. He genuinely just thought I was a waitress. And so I oh told him God. and I froze and I was like, oh crap, what do I do? Do I yeah. yell at him? What do I say? And I was like, okay, I'm just going to, I'll just play it off. So I said, okay, I'm happy to take your plates as soon as I give my keynote speech up on stage, okay? And he, That's a mic drop uh, moment. And he felt horrible. And afterwards he came up to me and he was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> Obviously, like people yeah. have good intentions. You, and so yeah. he's, I'm so sorry. I'll treat you to dinner. Look, I, and I'm like, don't worry about it. Look, next time hire more women, have more women in your company, go up on stage and give yeah. talks and, until one day when we get used to that so that our kids, when they think yeah. of what you mentioned, they think of a finance person, a trader, an entrepreneur, that they yeah. can think of different types. They can think of a woman. They can think of a person of color and yeah. not just for now. It's like when I think of, even for me, when I think of a trader, I'm like a Warren Buffett. There's a stereotype totally. in my head. Yeah. And one day I hope that those stereotypes, they can be replaced by other types of role models in this industry that look different and maybe hopefully look like me and talk like me. That'd be really cool. But yeah, those microaggressions, they do happen though. Even frequently, this was a week ago, even as recently, I hate to say these, I have so many stories about these, but so my co-founder is also Asian and we were on a call with, I won't say the name of the company. It's a household name, a big financial firm that employs probably tens of thousands of people. We were on the call with a very senior executive from that company. And when I introduced myself as Christina and my colleague introduced himself as Luca, and those are our legal names, by the way, <laughs> those are our given legal names. He immediately says, you can use your real names, right? And he's, this guy's, he's not Asian, right? But he's like, why don't you just use your real names? That was his first comment was like, oh, like you guys should just use your real names. And I'm like, that is my real name. <laughs> Like, what makes you think I have another name? But yeah, my parents call me by a Chinese name, but my legal name on my passport is Christina. And it was just such a rude... To me, I'm like, that came out of nowhere. And you're not even Asian. Like, why enter my space and tell me what name I should go, should and shouldn't go by? And this was a week ago. And oh it's funny, my, my co-founder God. doesn't get bothered by this at all because he just, whatever, like it happens, he's used to it because 
he's Singaporean and he gets microaggressions every day. You know, when in America, people will say your English is so good to him all the time because he has a Singaporean accent, <laughs> but <laughs> English is his native language. And yeah. everybody in Singapore knows this, right? Your yeah. native language, you grew up speaking English. Your mom speaks English. Your dad speaks English. Like his mom only spoke English to him growing up. His mom doesn't yeah. know any Chinese. His mom doesn't speak Mandarin at all. Yeah. And so the steer, it's just such a stereotype and he gets your English is so good all the time. And I'm like, I'm sorry. And he's like, whatever he's used to it. But for me, like when that happened, people are like, you got to go by your real name. And I'm like, yeah. you know, where are you really from? Yeah. That's where are you really from? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's the new really version of that. From? And I'm like, I, I feel like the only solution to that these days is just ask them a question, that same question back and just be like, great. And what's your real name? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Where are you right. really from? I'm Chris right? Williamson. Oh, wow. And you have a great English accent. Did it take you yeah, long to learn that? Which is great too. Oh my gosh. How did you learn? Yeah. You know? Oh my gosh. Good I would for you. I do that too. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> How do I pronounce that? Chris say? No, but it's a legitimate thing. I think last year I have a study here in front of me. They found that in the financial sector, over 60% of Asian women say that race had been an impediment, like a major impediment in their careers, especially the higher up they get into leadership, the more it gets questioned. And so I think 62% specifically API women. And this is once again, one of the smallest groups of leaders. If you take a look at statistic numbers, I'm like 1.5% at the C levels. And it's a huge population at the analyst level. So something doesn't add up. The math doesn't work. <laughs> Something's not adding up there. It is really unfortunate because I feel like a lot of Asian people feel like they can't talk about those issues or they feel like other races are going through a lot more. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. Right. Like I'm grateful that I've never been held at gunpoint. I'm grateful that mm -hmm. I I've rarely feel like my life is being threatened. But at the same time, it's like there's so many issues that are still legitimate. You're feeling like you're valid, right? There's still a lot of valid issues that do need to be addressed because it does affect us in every stage of our lives and every stage of our careers. And yeah, it's great to know that statistic though. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, no problem. It was just Googling it. It was on a Reuters <laughs> article and done by AAIM, the Association of Asian American Investment Managers. They have some really great studies that come out. I can't believe this is something you're still encountering this to this day, but at the same time, this is the reality. And you're right. We've gotten really good at telling ourselves it's okay. Personally, I've also run into so many different small racial experiences. So good for an Asian is one of those things that I've heard so many times at this point that I'm like, if I only had a dollar each time I said it, each time I heard it. But I think that when we speak up, we're helping the next generation not have to be taking a look at this because it's not about what's being said. I think that most of us were like, yeah, it's fine. We'll just shrug and we don't mind it. But it's about if that's what's being said, how does that affect their unconscious decisions? How does that affect their decisions when they're in boardrooms or leadership meetings where they're going, okay, well, I have all these people to promote. And am I going to promote the one? What's even her real name? And yeah. Yeah. right? If I don't even know, <laughs> can she speak it's English so well? True. These are the things that show up. Yeah. yeah, it's like a subconscious thing. And that scares me a lot too. You're right. And I've seen this happen even for my own board where my previous company, the hedge fund, we were interviewing a board member. And you know, this is again, another person who's very senior level from a very prestigious company, probably has his own Wikipedia page, whatnot. And so he comes into the office and I'm chair of the board, by the way. So we're in the middle of the interview and he gets a phone call. It just immediately picks up and he's like, hey, sorry, I'm talking to these kids right now. Can I call you back? And, <laughs> and I, I don't know if you caught that, but he said, I'm talking to these kids right now. And in my head, I'm like, I'm chair of the board. And yeah. look, if we were friends, like if he was my uncle's friend or whatever, he called, yeah. hey kid, yeah, that's totally fine. But the context mm. is that we've never met before. This is an interview for a board position of my company. Mm -hmm. And if we ever down the road, if things ever went bad, went south, and we had an argument on the board or disagreements on the board, which does happen, subconsciously, he thinks of me as a kid. I don't want that. Mm -hmm. That's a bad thing. So yes, it's yeah. even the story you mentioned there that relates so much to me. I can totally relate to that. It's happened to me before. And we ended up not hiring him. We didn't select him for the board because of that, actually, and of a variety of other factors. But that was one of them was we realized these microaggressions are, they're small, and they might not mean anything. If we ever get in an argument, and what does he think I am? I think mm -hmm. I'm just a kid. That could be a very negative thing. And by then, I think I was already, I was almost 30 years old. I get it. Compared to him, I might be his kid's age. But still, again, this is a professional relationship. We are mm -hmm. hiring him and paying him to be on our board and to be mm -hmm. unbiased on our board. Mm -hmm. And so again, like he didn't fit the criteria for the role. It's not about what's being said. 
it's exactly as you said, it's like, maybe he is that casual, but it's given the context of the situation, given the professionalism that is expected of this that situation, it, it reveals kind of his own unconscious biases. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And then it's also nerve wracking. I'm like, should I point people out when that happens? Or do they recognize it when that happens? And I decided, you know what, it's not worth it. These people are so senior. They already made a ton of money in their life and they're already successful. And, and I don't want to ruffle their feathers too much. And unfortunately, there's still a lot to lose for me. I have many more, hopefully many more years to live, mm -hmm. I hope. And I just don't mm -hmm. want to get on someone's bad side. And when we, if we were close enough, then I would definitely mention it to people. But again, it's, it's not my job to go out there and always correct people on stuff. I think this is key is that when we encounter these kind of things, one question is, why didn't you say something? So it's not my responsibility to educate people. But in this situation, it clearly demonstrates something like even just picking up the phone in the middle of a meeting to me, I, I would consider that rude. Dude, you should know better. Right? <laughs> this is not how you would talk to an equal. This is not how you talk to a peer. So it sets this up as this is what is being thought of. And I yeah. think that's the deeper element. And you have had such a history of you've been a Forbes 30 under 30. I see a 40 under 40 thing <laughs> behind you. These are you know, impressive awards, but I also see that you do a lot of nonprofit work. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. The basis for doing nonprofit, one was like, I've realized for me, I get a lot of satisfaction out of just giving back without expecting anything in return, whether that's donations of my money or my time or my skills or whatever kind of things. But for me, I think that's always been fulfilling and it's something that I wish I had learned earlier as well, that mm. it's okay to give back, but also that there's opportunities and you don't even, people don't realize this too, that nonprofit work isn't just a giving a bunch of money away and that's mm. it, right? There's actually a lot of valuable opportunities that you can gain by doing like serving on a board of a nonprofit, for example, mm. right? And helping out with a cause that's greater than yourself, that's greater than a single human being, but as a cause, whether they're causes to help underrepresented minorities, or I serve on a lot of causes that help with, for example, Invest in Girls was a, I served on that board for about five years, I think. And for that organization, we help a lot of high school aged girls who are oftentimes from underrepresented low income communities to have an education in, you know, basic financial literacy and finance. And the goal isn't that everyone wants to go into finance. That's not the goal. The goal is just to teach them to how to talk and think about money and how to basic things like what are taxes and what does it mean when we talk about investment banking versus sales and trading, right? Like many people, many of us probably didn't know what those were growing up. And so it's really cool because they've heard about these terms, but then to really teach them what it means and what are the careers and what does it look like it has been really cool. And then also to bring them into financial, into the industry and they have visits to some financial firms. And for a lot of them, it is their first time ever being on the 50th floor of a building ever. Oh, wow. And so that is also just a life experience of it is your first time ever being in a high rise building. What an experience that is for a high school student who's mm -hmm. from a low income background, who's never experienced that. For me, it's like doing those things. I think it, it gives me a purpose to this look in finance, it is true. When I had worked in the hedge fund space, were we curing cancer? No. Are we making a huge difference to million? Are we saving lives? Absolutely not. I don't want to sugarcoat that because it's true. In finance, at the end of the day, our business model is that we were taking money from a lot of times they're billionaires because by law, we're only allowed to take money from ultra yeah. individuals by law, by the way, you're trading the money and then making right. them richer. And I'm like, that's, yeah, that helped me make a living. And it helps me because I take a cut of that revenue and that's the hedge fund model. That's how it works. But I want to use those skill sets and I want to help the next generation to right. at least know basic financial literacy so that they know how they're not going to be in debt in the future. Mm -hmm. How do they pay off their credit card loans? What does it mean to start a credit card and a debit card and all those different things? And yeah, it's been really meaningful for me to be able to give back and to do those things as well. And it also helps me meet other people who are also like my in this industry. And it's nice, like investing girls, a lot of times when we have, when we were having our board meetings, a lot of them would say, this is my first time in a meeting with mostly women in the room, you know? And it was like, mm. oh, same here. Yeah. I'm used to being in meetings where mostly guys in the room. And then it's really mm. nice to see a board meeting with mostly women mm. on the board. It was also really mm. cool. Those experiences are definitely experiences I recommend to anyone who's just wanting to give back and be more involved in any community that it's been just such a rewarding experience for me personally. But yeah, and then also since you mentioned it, the Forbes 30 under 30 and whatever those yeah. awards, look, how I view these awards is that these are all just shiny trophies. And yes, some of them are great in that they lead you to more opportunities. I'm personally very skeptical of awards lists. And look, if someone wants to put me on one, I will fully graciously accept it. But at the same time, knowing that these lists are not perfect. There have been multiple people who are now in prison who are on Forbes under 30. Freed, I think he was on the cover. Elizabeth oh, yeah. Paul. 
couple in the, oh my gosh, also yeah. on the cover. And again, so these lists are not perfect. Mm. They're by no means definitive of here are the best people in the world. No, not mm. they're not reflection of self-worth or value. Mm. But when someone wants to apply to this list, like, okay, great go for it. There's nothing wrong with having ambition and doing it and applying mm -hmm. year after year until you get it, right? Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, recognizing that there's a lot of flaws with how society's obsession almost with awards mm -hmm. and trophies. So there's a little bit for me, I'm like, now I can look back and be like, whoa, yes, I've benefited mm -hmm. enormously from them. But mm -hmm. also like, why is society so part of it's because society's obsessed with them. So and just questioning why uh, is also really important. Yeah. So that's a perfect segue. We just talked about these brilliant moments of success success and awards and everything like that. I love to hear it because it's something that you specifically have talked about before and mentioning is failures. It's something we don't talk a lot about, especially with the Asian people. We just don't really talking about it because it's part of our culture too. We don't show the ugly side. This is an actual, I'm trying to translate a Chinese saying here. So can you tell me a little bit more about what happened with Domyard? Yes, absolutely. So Domyard ultimately failed. And I do want to quickly before that, you're right, by the way, that especially with Asian Americans and Asians in general, by the way, there's like in a lot of other cultures too, there's a culture mm -hmm. of like shame and losing mm -hmm. face. You don't mm -hmm. want to lose face. You want to yeah. be manly. You want to be like, everything's going well. And yeah, and all the so, time. Yeah, Shiny and it, it makes it so difficult to open up about whether it's like emotions or failure or vulnerabilities, even asking questions. Sometimes I think we are a little bit afraid of raising our hand and asking questions because of the potential embarrassment that mm -hmm. you might have of, oh, what if it's a bad question? Over time, I've learned to not be afraid to open up about failures and about those types of things at the risk of my reputation dying. And that's okay. And I realized that the risk is it's worth it because one is that it helps other people learn from my mistakes, but also two, to me, it's actually therapeutic, to be honest, to be hmm. like, yo, this was a massive failure and I want to talk about it with people. And when I'm grateful, by the way, to have friends and family who understand and are willing to like, I can cry on their shoulder essentially. <laughs> but yeah, so anyway, to go back to your question on what happened with Domeyard in 2020, we had a very bad year. Unfortunately, our performance, we were down 12%. And I know like for many people, you're like, what? That's not too bad in the grand scale of things. For us, like it was the final nail in the coffin on many frustrating years of, we had a lot of just a lot of challenges operating with all kinds of things with scaling our fund, for example, scalability was a big issue. We couldn't scale beyond a certain, we were trading like 7 billion. We couldn't scale beyond that. And it was really frustrating oh, wow. for us. The cost of going into new uh, trading in other locations as well. So just thinking about those challenges, the cost of hiring by then our cap table was also cap tables, like who owns equity in the company and stuff. It was quite like all over the place a little bit. And so it just was getting to a point where we were like, okay, maybe it's time to move on and to use this as a signal that we should do other things in our lives. And we had been running this fund. My initial goal with starting the fund was I just wanted to pay off my student loans. I was $40,000 in debt <laughs> and my mom had lost her job. It was like, oh, eight, oh, nine, right? So not, my parents didn't have jobs. And so we ended up being in a lot more debt than I was expecting. And so my goal was like, I just want to pay off those loans and get just, and that was it. And so I paid off my loans already by far. And I like helped uh, yeah. my parents, did all those Asian <laughs> things, helped my parents with like, yeah their debt to and whatever else I need to do. And I was like, I've already accomplished my goals. And I don't need to become a billionaire. I don't want to become a billionaire. I just want to like, I'm well off enough and decided, hey, let's shut this down. And I want to be able to focus on starting a company called Data Bento to be able to use my skills. We have the skill set in data. And at the time we were wasting millions of dollars on data. And so we're like, let's fix this data problem make sure that this data industry can be more accessible. Data can be more affordable and accessible and good quality, better quality to all of our users out there. And so that's what we decided to do was thankfully we had another idea and we wanted to work on it. And, and it was a more impactful idea because now we can make a real difference. We have a lot of startups that use our product and mm. every day we get messages of, oh, thank you. You helped us launch faster with your data product. I'm like, oh, thank goodness. It's been really positive to be able to going from a controversial industry of high frequency trading oh. into running a data company. I'm like, I'm actually really grateful. Even though people are like, why would you ever do that? And I'm like, it's the life I want to live. That's You're making a positive difference. And I like the difference. Yeah, I like yeah. the positiveness of being in a space where people understand, like right. what to make a difference and to help other companies. I think it's a, a good mm -hmm. mission and yeah. yeah, have really enjoyed this journey so far. <laughs> now, I want to hear a lot more about Data Bentil and the starting of founding of that. I really want to hear about the way that you describe this transition sounds so effortless and beautiful. I'm sure... <laughs> Were there any tough days 
in that time? Oh, there were many tough days. Even just the decision of whether to shut down the company or not. We could have continued, by the way. We really mm -hmm. could have. It wasn't like anything really bad happened where we must shut down. It, there were no lawsuits or anything like that. Mm -hmm. All of our investors were really sad when we told them we wanted to shut it down. And oh, wow. they were, a lot of them were like, why? And I get it. There were definitely a lot of tough conversations about what does it mean and what kind of future do we want? And do we want to really continue doing this? And But just for me, looking back on, I was just thinking, I did a lot of exercises where one of those mental exercises where you're like, imagine you're in your deathbed, you're like 90, 100 years old and looking back on your life and what kind of legacy do you want to have, right? What do you want to be known for? And how would you feel comfortable doing this for the next 10, 20 years? And, and for me, my answer was clearly no. I was like, oh, I actually don't want to be known as like a high frequency trader, <laughs> even though it's a sexy thing. And these days it's, it's fine. The controversy is over from 10 years ago. Now that it, we've moved on to crypto being the controversial <laughs> thing and <laughs> NFTs and there's so many other more, way more controversial things today. But uh, I still don't really understand what NFTs are. Please do not write me messages, people. Countless friends have tried to explain. I still don't get it. <laughs> yeah, same. It's difficult for me because it, it feels like I've, I can go on about forever about this topic. I know that's not the topic of the podcast, but yeah, I've definitely had a lot of conversations, I guess you could say, about these mm -hmm. things too. But yeah, for me, I'm like, I don't want to be known for that kind of stuff. I want to be known mm -hmm. for doing something, trying to change the financial industry for the better, to do something mm -hmm. in this space where the industry becomes a little, even if it's a little bit more affordable or a little bit more accessible to everybody else in this industry, then I'll feel a lot happier with what we're doing. And the good news is like when we do make an impact, like that the money will always come. It's just mm -hmm. that I don't want to focus on that as my only thing in life anymore. Like mm -hmm. I want to have some impact. Yeah. Was it at all challenging, especially making the decision to like letting something that you've grown for so long die? Were there any kind of... Yeah. <laughs> lots of tears like for sure yeah yeah lots of tears lots of days where you kind of existential crisis because it feels it does i hate to say it feels like a baby because i've never had a baby before and i know that's a different thing altogether but um, it did feel like you're losing something very precious to you is how i'll word it it really because it's all i've known it's all my entire career i've only had that one company and i had it for the first decade of my career that's a really long time that's like a over a third of my life just dead <laughs> dedicated to this one mission, this one company. Mm -hmm. So yeah, absolutely. It felt very brutal to have to let that go. And I was the face of the company. Mm -hmm. The company shut down actually a few years after I had already left to start Datavento, but it oh. still stung. It still felt just as like bad. Yeah. And just for me, almost like the stages of grief and mourning, like I was definitely mourning the loss of it and was really, and then the other thing is being open about it. It was very, even for me, difficult to, if I open up about it, how many opportunities am I going to lose? And I did lose some opportunities, by the way. And I don't want to say that to discourage people from opening up about their failures and stuff, but just saying that realistically. And the people who don't give you opportunities, that you don't want to work with them anyway. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It was funny because I had announced the failure of my first company when I was raising funding for my second company. And you betcha some VCs, the ones I don't want to ever work with, would say, hey, Christina, your company, they asked the questions in a way that clearly it bothered them. They were like, oh, they didn't say, oh, what happened to your previous company? It wasn't like an open-ended. Yeah, yeah. They were, since your previous company failed, I don't think, I don't believe in your ability as a founder anymore. And I'm they, like, we they ran said that? this company. Yeah, they Directly? would say that. And I, Damn, and I'm like, we ran brutal. this company for 10 years. We could have continued. It wasn't a big scandal. It wasn't like I went right. to jail or no, none of that. We gracefully mm -hmm. wound down fund investors from my previous, the hedge fund. We, when we told them about it, they were all sad, right? They weren't like, good for you. You deserve to die. And they wasn't <laughs> like that at all. And so it's just funny that some VCs definitely took it the as if this failure was a bad mark on my reputation or whatever. And I'm like, you right. know what? Like, I don't need that. And we don't need to work with there's a lot more fish out there and I'm okay with that and I'm okay with being open and the good news is also there's been a lot of entrepreneurs who reach out and they'll say thank you for sharing and for being open about it and I could have not shared it I could have completely quiet about it and just moved I on I think most people would have been acceptable yeah. as well but totally but yeah just deciding to be more open about it to hopefully set a good example that these things do happen and that it's okay to be open and to share and so yeah that's what we did. It's been also humbling, by the way, because back when I was running the hedge fund, look, we were trading billions of dollars a day. We were establishing quite a big reputation, at least amongst some people in the industry, not that big. But still, to give you a sense, there were definitely a lot of people who treated me differently after I announced the failure, you know, mm. back when I was running the billion dollar hedge fund, whatever they would call it, right? In terms mm -hmm. of how do I describe it? Definitely people used to treat me, sometimes some people would treat me with a lot more authority, like they would mm. be 
scared or intimidated a little bit or just be a lot more respectful and want to ask me for advice and things like that. Almost treating me like a big, I don't know, more of a big shot than I am. And then now that the cards have all crumbled, it's been interesting in that the way that people treat me, it's actually, I appreciate that. Now I know, you know, who my real friends are. I hate to say that, but it's true, right? Like mm -hmm. I know now which friends are the ones who still treat me the same and they didn't view me for how much money was in my bank account. They viewed mm -hmm. me for me as a person and I appreciate the people who are real like that and appreciate me for who I am and not how much money I have. But yeah, I definitely noticed a little bit of that. And I say that not to discourage people again, but more just to yeah. that that's just the real world. That's what happens. Yeah. And that's the consequence that I'm willing to face. And it also the good silver lining is that at least now, like my friends are all genuine friends, right? Like I've stripped, yeah. I've also stepped down from all my board positions, almost all of them. I've stripped away my titles. I've stripped away my trophies, wow. like all those big shiny objects traditionally used yeah. to prop me up artificially or whatever like it made me look really cool now that they're stripped away i feel like i'm more human mm -hmm. i do appreciate that aspect of it yeah <laughs> this is interesting why why did you decide to step down from all these i'm assuming you're talking about you were on the board of the mit 100 women in finance all these things why did you make that change a couple of reasons one is that i moved from boston back to utah and right. a lot of the boards i sat on were local to boston for me i wanted to be able to pass the baton to somebody else next generation of board members and somebody who is ready and available to take on those opportunities. And these are opportunities. Board seats are, they are opportunities, one, to give back, but also you meet a huge network of people and it can be very prestigious to hold these board seats. But I've decided, look, I don't need the prestige anymore. I can still give back being a regular volunteer, but I don't mm -hmm. need to be chair of the board anymore. And so mm. I decided to step away from those positions. But also because to be honest, I had served on some of those boards for quite a few years mm -hmm. and it became, for me, I'm like, I have overserved my positions, I feel mm -hmm. like. Some of them would continue inviting me back year after year. And I appreciate that. I'm glad that I've provided hopefully some value to them that they keep inviting me back. But again, I feel like I've overserved some of these positions and realized that I don't need the titles anymore and that I can pass it on to somebody else who wants this opportunity. And so yeah, I decided to step off not all of them, but at least a pretty large number of board positions where they were quite time consuming or they involved a lot of networking and stuff in Boston decided mm. to just step off of those. And I think it made a lot of sense. Lesson on like less is sometimes more and mm. it's okay to a lot of times, I think growing up in, we all grew up in Asian, like some of us grew up in yeah. more competitive environments than others, I feel like. But I remember for me, it was like a lot of my peers, we would all feel pressure to pile on more and more titles and trophies and awards yeah. because we're millennials, by the way, so I'm a millennial. And that's one of the definitions of the millennial generation. I don't know if you've ever heard of this with millennials, there's three T's, a technology, which makes sense. Like we are the technology first technology. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like we were born with smartphones, basically. Well, not exactly. Really, but, yeah. you know, we were certainly raised with smartphones playing a major role. Yep. Yeah, exactly. The second one is trophies. That's the second T. So um, and that's when we're growing up, like suddenly we're in an era where I remember like my younger brother was on a soccer team and his team lost and he took home a trophy. And I'm like, wait, you lost. And he's like, yeah, but everyone <laughs> And I'm like, why? So the trophies, I think you know this. You go to some Asian household and you see a wall. It's just a wall. Yeah. <laughs> that's a part of our generation. Literary. And then the third T is trauma. And I think that's so true. A lot of us, we had a lot of key events in our lifetime that made us mm. have a sense of distrust maybe mm -hmm. in society. So 9-11 was sure. traumatic for many of us as kids yep. growing up, September 11th. And recently, we don't trust the media. There's a lot of issues we have. And also just trauma in terms of like mental health. Mm. Growing up back then, mental health mm. does exist. And no. now we've realized, wait a second, we've ignored our mental health for so many years. We've ignored everything. A lot of us have had a lot of depression and anxiety and PTSD mm -hmm. and all these other issues we've developed, but like we never learned to treat them and recognize them. And that's another big one is they call it trauma. Yeah. So those are the defining features of our generation. I definitely agree with all those things, but also I'm trying to realize, okay, I can let go of the trophies and the technology too. Try to get right. off Facebook. That's okay. <laughs> and to treat my trauma. Yeah. When you say treat your trauma, what does that look like for you? When, especially around the last few years of running the fund, I think I had PTSD for a little bit. Oh, mainly, sure. And I still do. It doesn't really go away. It's just more like you learn how to manage it. I just didn't know how to manage it back then. But a lot of it was just related to one is that for me, being in the hedge fund space where we're trading every day, it's mm -hmm. very difficult for everybody, by the way, in this space. At the very mm -hmm. beginning, when you start your career, it is so difficult to separate your company's performance mm -hmm. from your self-worth as an right. individual. 
And so it could go good and bad. It's a roller coaster. During the good years, you're on cloud nine. You know, everything yeah. you feel so yeah. confident, everything's going well. But Your company's doing well, year, so therefore you're doing well. Exactly. Right? Yeah, like my life is doing well because we have identity attached to it. Exactly. Yeah, we've attached everything to this uh, identity. Yeah. So yeah, and then when on a bad year, then it's your life is over. It feels like my life mm-hmm. is over. And it took me so failures. long to realize, no, even though it is my company and I should have more skin in the game than mm-hmm. usual. At the same time, I needed to not dissociate. I hate to say that word, yeah. but like that work creative work. At like arm's separate, yeah, separate that work mm-hmm. and life. And there's mm-hmm. different, like we can move on after work and not think about work and like that there's friends and there's way more to life than mm-hmm. just, and by the way, same with starting a company. When you mm-hmm. start a lot of first time entrepreneurs that I talk to, mm-hmm. they're constantly working and that's great. I'm glad that they have the energy too, but it's just, you will burn out at some mm-hmm. point. You have to find other things, friends and hobbies. And oh, by the way, that was the other thing. So I don't know if I'm, if this is okay, maybe as a final story to share. So my brother passed away two years ago. He was a sophomore at the University oh, of gosh, Michigan. So sorry. And, and he was adopted by the way. So it's a long story, but his biological family and our family do not get along very well. And so we had a lot of, it was a very difficult thing, both in terms of just his death to process. And it's still today, I'm still in disbelief. I'm still grieving. And it's been really difficult just dealing with everything involved. And I have two brothers. So just in case one of my, one of my brothers shows up, like, wait, he's alive. I have two brothers. But anyway, just uh, I'm the oldest sister. When that happened, it did help me to step back and realize, wait a second, I missed his 20th birthday because I was working. Do I remember what I did at work? No, I don't remember what I did. It didn't make a difference in the long-term scale of things. It did not matter at all that I worked Mm -hmm. that day, but I just remember I was so busy that day for some reason. I missed his birthday and it should have flown home and just celebrated with him. I missed his graduation. I missed just events in his life, not only his life, but my other friends. I've missed my friends' weddings. I've missed their celebrations, their graduations. They've invited me to parties that I just ignore their invite on Facebook. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. they thought about me in that moment Mm -hmm. and I've ignored them. And so I missed all these big events in people's lives and I will never get that time back. I will never get that time back with my brother. For me, that is so just incredibly just devastating. It's so sad that I'll never get that time back. And that has helped me realize that there's so much more to life than work. There's so much more to life than trophies and success and like the definition, society's definition of success. There's way more to life than that. And if I want to live my life and step off of all these board positions, strip myself of all these titles, and if that makes me feel happier, and if that lets me celebrate graduation and weddings and birthday parties and the big events of the people around me, then yes, I will do that because that means a lot more to me than mm. these board positions and these titles. That was what I learned over these past two years. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that story. And I'm so sorry for that. It's It must have been very difficult. Yeah, it's still, it's hard to talk about because I still am in a little bit of disbelief. And when somebody, you never expected to happen to you. He was perfectly healthy, by the way. It was a sudden thing. He had a heart attack in his sleep at night. Oh and that was it. Gosh. That It was like just the next day. Thankfully, he has many friends on campus and they knew something was wrong and the alerted police came in and at least everything was very, and I hope it was painless. But again, like I think about those all the time. It always goes through my head and he's always my life. I turn on even today, I open Netflix and his name is still on our family account on Netflix. Just small little things where, and I'm like, yeah. oh, he's not there anymore. Little things like that still, affect me on a daily basis but again like he's helped me so much just in terms of putting life into perspective and also I'm I'm trying my best to get over that those what ifs oh my regrets right oh I regret not doing this I regret not spending more time with him and with my family but and that by the way that's also why I moved back to Utah to be closer to my family that's my number one reason did I move back for career opportunities no do you think there's any opportunities in board seats for me in Utah probably not I work in finance but again like I moved back because I realized that life is really short and I want to spend this short time I have on this earth with the people who I love the most and yeah if that's the hopefully one thing you can take away from the podcast then so be it I'm happy for that and definitely hope that learned a thing or two (laughs) wow that's a very powerful story to share And, and again thank you so much so I'm watching our time I did have one thing I really wanted to ask about. Can I just throw one final thing at you? And then we'll, but before we finalize, uh, by the way, is there anything that usually I have a lot of people who have media accounts and stuff like that? That's usually where we direct them. Is there anything that you want us to call out or direct at the very end or? Yeah. In terms of where to follow me, if you want to keep in touch. Again, like I'm human. I'm not the adult in the room, right? We're all equals (laughs) here. So I am also human, which means that yes, you can reach out to me in various 
formats. I'm befriendable on LinkedIn and also follow me or on Twitter if you'd like as well. I would say on Twitter, I post different content. LinkedIn yeah. is a lot more professional, but then Twitter is definitely a lot more of my ramblings. And like whenever I have, there's a microaggression, like all late night, I like ramble about it on Twitter. So feel free Great. to uh, at your own risk, follow me on those platforms. And what's your uh, Twitter handle? Twitter handle is just at Christina Chi, which is my full name, just C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-A-Q-I. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. So final question. One of the things you talked about on your bio and other places is the idea of imposter syndrome. Given the fact that you started multiple companies, sat on these kind of massive boards, all these things, do you still experience imposter syndrome now? Oh my God, all the time. Less than I used to, but now that I'm a little older, but still quite a lot. But there's definitely ways that I've learned to combat imposter syndrome over time. One funny story was many years ago, someone invited me to speak at a conference on a panel for AI. Mm -hmm. And I emailed them back. I'm like, I don't know anything about, I'm not an expert <laughs> in AI. Yes, my fund does a little bit of machine learning and yeah. a little bit of stuff like that. Why am I on this panel? I don't have a PhD in AI, so I'm sorry, I'm not qualified. And then... I look at their website and I see the other speakers who are already on the panel and these people, I know them. I'm like, oh wait, this one guy, I know he started his hedge fund like three years after me. They manage a lot less money than we do. They're basically like a few years behind us and he knows nothing about AI. I've known him for a long time. Like he knows nothing about this topic. Why is he on this panel? And so then and I was like, oh, Maybe I should be on this panel because I think he's going to say some really wrong things about AI and I need to correct him. And so I emailed them back and I said, never mind, I'll speak on the panel. And so the day comes of the conference, we go to this panel together. Lo and behold, he says all this BS about, I'm sorry to swear, but he says all this stuff about AI that is not true. And he's like, AI is all about, I don't know, he just said all these things that just made no sense. And I was like, no, those are not true. And so we ended up actually debating a little bit on stage for better or worse. And it was really funny. Apparently the organizers liked us so much because we were such an interesting, usually on panels, everyone just nods yeah. and we were the only panel where everyone was disagreeing with each other. They invited us back year after year and they ended up just calling it an AI debate. They're like the great AI debate panel. <laughs> and so that way we were like allowed to debate and that was expected that we would talk about these oh topics. Gosh. And it was funny because it helped both of our careers enormously just by saying yes to this opportunity. And again, are we the most qualified people in the world on AI? Absolutely not. But at the same time, it was, we served the purpose of being very entertaining on that panel, making people think about these topics. So I think that was the goal and we fulfilled that. And again, if there's an opportunity that you're given and you have imposter syndrome on something, just think about like, how can you use it as an opportunity to give back? How can mm. you use it as an opportunity to grow and to learn? And then also chances are everyone else feels the same way. They all feel imposter syndrome too. Just know that you're not alone in that feeling too. Yeah. That's a perfect takeaway. And I love that we could go into that kind of debate about AI in that kind of context. Thank you so much for your time today, Christina. It's been an absolute the incredible journey. If you want to know more and learn about Christina's work, either at Data Bento, you can check it out at Data Bento HQ. That's at Data Bento HQ and her own personal account at Christina Chi on X, formerly Twitter. I'm looking at your Twitter. Is your Twitter Japanese or do I have something going on in my computer? Oh, so 90% of my followers are Japanese. And that's another long story for another time. But Japanese people love Twitter. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> okay, great. Okay, so check out Okay, you follow Christina on Twitter and you can find her on LinkedIn. Thank you once again. You've been absolutely incredible. As Asian Americans, we are as strong as our collective community. So if there's something that you found valuable in this episode, share it with a friend and tag us on social media. And if you like the show, leave us a review and send us a screenshot and you might win some big Asian energy merch, which we give out every month. So you can go out there and own your big Asian energy.